Okay. Um, with the green light, I will go ahead and start the uh, this presentation, CGM in sport. I just want to say a very big thank you for inviting me. Um, I'll keep the chat open, by the way. So if there's anything does not work, then please let me know in the uh, in the chat. Um, thanks very much for having me. It's a shame that I can't be there in uh, person. It is quite early here. I live in the in the UK um from holland originally and on the left hand side you can see i'm affiliated with loughborough university and i run my own company my sports science which is really consulting with a number of clients in sport and a few of them are listed on the left um, in that role i'm performance manager for nutrition for team nl so that's the the whole team all sports that uh, go to the olympic games i'm head of performance nutrition for red bull at the athlete performance center and i'm head of performance nutrition for cycling team jumbo visma and i'll give some examples of uh, uh, especially uh, red bull and uh, jumbo visma in this presentation um, before that, I had a long career at the university, and one of the things that we studied most was glucose metabolism. So the fact that we now have CGM monitors is actually quite exciting because it can give us insights into glucose. At the same time, I think it's a tool that we shouldn't sort of overestimate what it can do because all it does is just measure blood glucose so we'll we'll go into um this in a little bit more uh, detail but originally um i was contacted by uh, ricardo costa asking and the question was can you um give a talk on uh, nutrition in sort of the new sports at the olympic games and the extreme uh, sports and with my uh, work at uh, red bull um, I thought that was actually quite an interesting challenge, but really a challenge as well. So I'm going to start the presentation with a few cool photos of what those sports would be. And it's also then immediately clear that it's not so easy to give performance-related um, nutrition advice in these sports, especially not if we want to have it evidence-based because we have very little uh, research in these areas and the same is probably true also for uh, cgm so skateboarding is one of those uh, sports and these are kids that live uh, very often still in the uh, parking lots of mcdonald's um, then we have another sport is uh, is this one uh, break breakdowns where also uh, nutrition is not always on the radar yet because they're lifestyle sports where uh, and and we've seen this in the past also with snowboarding where slowly they've transformed into a really professional sport and what about these sports where you uh, take your snowboard and you jump out of a plane um, or well let's call it mountain biking or even more extreme uh, mountain biking surfing or whitewater canoeing or even climbing so i will stick to the sports that i have some experience uh, with in using cgm one of them is professional cycling 
There's a photo from a few years ago, Primoz Roglic, uh, who almost won that uh, Tour de France, lost it on the uh, on the last day. Um, but then, fortunately, this year was able to win the Giro d'Italia with Team Jumbo Visma, and we, with that team, also won the Tour de France this year. And then it was Sepkus who um, achieved like the the almost impossible that is winning all three Grand Tours in um, in one year, and that has been quite a journey. And using CGM has been part of that journey, very small part, but it was a part. So I will talk about um, what you can do and cannot do with one of these uh, sensors, and hopefully also um, talk about sort of the some of the practicalities of uh, of this. Then I'll continue with a, a few more photos. Uh, I will also talk about the use of CGM in this sport. Very different. Uh, much shorter, um, raised also close to maximum heart rate, um, but CGM would be used for slightly different reasons in this uh, sport. And uh, also in this sport, we've had some uh, serious success, of course, in the last uh, few years. Now, before I really start to talk, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. And I have to apologize to um, some people that uh, may be very aware of uh, of all of this. But uh, I just want to talk with a few slides a little bit about sort of the background. What is the role of blood glucose? Uh, how is it regulated? Well, I think, first of all, glucose is the primary fuel for the brain. And that is a reason to really control glucose very tightly in the body. Glucose is also an important substrate for muscle contraction and can be used at quite high rates. Um, and glucose is, of course, also a fuel for most cells in the body. Now, when glucose is uh, ingested, trying to get the, uh, hopefully you can see my uh, cursor. So when uh, glucose is ingested in the intestine. It then goes through the portal vein into the liver. It is then going to the rest of the body and taken up by the brain, by muscle, and by other tissues. And glucose concentration will vary, but we ha we do have a typical glucose range. Uh, perhaps that range is a little bit individual, uh, but in most people, it is within a certain range. And in conditions like um, diabetes, of course, it goes. It is very difficult to keep it within that range, or almost impossible to keep it within that range because there is a problem with that regulation. If the glucose concentration goes up, sorry, if the glucose concentration goes up, um, then we have mechanisms to uh dispose of some of that glucose if glucose concentration goes down then we have mechanisms to increase um glucose concentration and the liver plays a really important role it's the only organ together with uh, the kidney for a small percentage uh, that can take up glucose but also produce glucose so the very simple model is that we have two organs that can deliver glucose or with the kidney, maybe three, but liver liver and kidney uh, produce glucose when needed. Uh, of course, when we have a meal, there's another source of glucose. 
that will enter into the circulation. And then we have various tissues that can take up glucose where uh, the brain and the muscle are probably, especially the muscle, are the most important uh, organs for glucose uptake. And the body regulates glucose concentration in this range, 5 to 5.5 millimoles per liter. And the unit that I will use mostly today uh, for this purpose is 90 to 100 milligrams per deciliter. And I use that unit simply because the most CGM uh, devices will use that uh, unit. Um, the regulation of hepatic glucose output is through both feed forward and feedback mechanisms. An example of feed forward would be exercise. There's a signal that goes from the muscle to the brain to the liver that then tells the liver to produce glucose, which is released into the circulation. And feedback mechanism would be that you get a change in your blood glucose concentration. If it goes up, then we then have feedback regulation uh, to make sure that uh, it goes down again. If the glucose concentration drops, then we have feedback regulation through the liver that starts producing glucose to make sure that glucose comes back up again. So I've labeled these one, two, and three, and we'll talk about each, each of these in a little bit more detail. So there are, there's actually the understanding of feed forward regulation is, is still quite incomplete. Um, but we do know that it happens. We do know that the liver produces glucose and this can be taken up by the muscle. And we know that when we exercise, there are various mechanisms that will stimulate this feed forward mechanism. Um, afferent nerve activity is suggested as one of those factors. You can see that I put question marks behind here because the evidence is quite mixed. Catecholamines, glucagon plays an important role here, even though I put a question mark here. Energy status of liver cells will play a role. Um, maybe myokines play a role. Uh, retinol binding protein, IL-6, apelin, and myonectin. And there may be several other factors that are important that we haven't discovered yet. So I, in terms of the increasing the glucose output, so this would happen when the glucose concentration in the blood uh, drops. Um, this is mostly by um, high glucagon that will stimulate glucose production and low insulin at the same time. And low insulin we get during exercise by the increase in catecholamines, which will really suppress insulin. So that's the second part of regulation. And then we have... Uh, the role of insulin. So if we eat glucose and glucose concentration increases, then the beta cells in the pancreas will sense that uh, glucose and start to produce insulin. And that insulin will then increase the uptake in muscle, but also in adipose tissue. It'll also increase the uptake in liver and then later the, uh, the muscle cells. So those are the regulation, the mechanisms that we have. So <clears throat> if um, we look at the glucose level here, it is low, then uh, we can produce glucagon, which then converts glycogen or breaks down glycogen to glucose, releases it in blood, and it normalizes the blood glucose concentration. 
So the most important thing to take away from this is that we have a lot of regulatory mechanisms to make sure that glucose concentration stays stable. There are many, many factors involved in the regulation of blood glucose. And later, one of my main messages is that we should therefore not simplify uh, things too much. And of course, if we have a consumer device like a CGM uh, for marketing people, it is very tempting to um, simplify things as much as possible. But that's also where the danger is. Um, finally, I want to mention the uh, the role of the, uh, the brain because we know that glucose is an important fuel for the brain. Uh, maybe not so much during uh, starvation where ketone bodies can become important, but in most conditions, sorry, I don't know why my slides are moving here, but um, during prolonged starvation, ketone bodies are important. In most other conditions, glucose is the most important uh, fuel for the brain. And the brain consumes a significant amount of glucose daily, about 110 grams, 440 calories. So that's a very significant amount of glucose in an inactive person. It's uh, it's 60% of the whole uh, glucose that's used by the body. Um, if we look at plasma glucose concentrations, um, a normal concentration would be somewhere between 90 and 100. Um, if that concentration drops to, say, 3.7 uh, millimoles per liter, then glucagon growth hormone and epinephrine or adrenaline are released. If it drops around 3.6, then brain metabolism begins to be uh, impaired. Cortisol is secreted. Uh, three millimoles severe hunger is uh, stimulated. So you become really hungry when it drops uh, this low. And then if it drops lower than that, then we really get pretty severe effects on cognitive uh, function. We'll come back to that uh, later. And of course, if it drops even more, um, it's dangerous and it can cause coma, even death. So it is important to make sure that glucose concentration at least stay within, within the normal range and don't drop too much. Um, in sport, of course, we are very familiar with the symptoms of hyperglycemia, and those include dizziness, nausea, hunger, weakness, tremor, sweating, headache, restlessness, and lack of concentration. Now, the definition of hyperglycemia is uh, it, it's probably used in different ways and also in the literature. But typically, I would say this is a concentration where you have a value of about six, 70 milligrams per deciliter for a longer period of time and sometimes that longer is defined as 15 minutes so now i get to the body of the presentation i'm going to talk very briefly about where we are with cgm um, something more general about using new technologies what is cgm what exactly does it do? What does it measure? What are some of the limitations? I think with any device, it's very important to know what the limitations are as well as knowing how to use it. And uh, the glycemic index, I will talk about a little bit and, and what can we, how can we use this in a combination with CGM or can we use it? 
And then uh, the last bit is probably the most important for those of you who are looking for practical messages is, well, what can we actually do with CGM? So, and, and I can definitely share um, also some practical lessons. Um, okay, using new technology. So the CGM or the technology is actually not as new as it uh, may, may appear, but we see it now used in athletes. And in that respect, it's quite new. So we can put these glucose sensors usually on the arm of the uh, of the athlete. And we now have insight into something that's happening inside our body, blood glucose, where previously you needed a finger prick um, or a whole lab setting to measure this. Now you have constant uh, monitoring of your glucose. And when I started using this, uh, quite a few years ago now with uh, with athletes it reminded me of the uh, the first heart rate monitors and <clears throat> when i was young it's very long ago um i had a heart rate monitor that was even larger than uh, than this one it was a box about uh, about this size and i was very excited about this heart rate monitor and i could carry it on my bike and i had to attach it to my handlebars it wasn't wireless it had wires going to my chest so i had put electrodes on and then i could measure my heart rate while i was out cycling and it was very exciting to see the numbers that your heart rate uh, goes up it comes back down and then it became a little bit with these sort of devices, it became a little bit more mainstream and everyone started using heart rate monitors. And now, of course, uh, any, every device has a, um, a heart rate sensing uh, device. But some of the questions that we got in those early years were, oh, my heart rate is 140. Is that good? Is it bad? And I think this is also where we are with CGM now. So you get athletes using CGM, they get a value and they want to know if it's good or bad, but it's just like heart rate. It's, it's not good or bad. It's just a value. It's just measuring your normal physiology. We've had um, something similar when the power meters came out. Um, initially, power meters, very few people had power meters because they were very expensive. And the last few years, the last 10 years, actually, they've become much more mainstream. Now, many people have power meters, but it took a while before people actually knew how to use them. Now we have methods uh, and, and software that help us to interpret the data, also to not over-interpret that data. And it's become a very useful tool. But in the early days, you just got a trace of power and no one really knew what to do with it um, and again i think that's where we are uh, with cgm now it's uh, we don't quite know what to do with it yet but um, it has a very i think a very promising future um peeling back the onion um i mentioned that sort of the first layer is this question like is 140 bad or is it good um so that's where we are now with cgm so if you see a value that is 120 or 100 and, uh, 140 is that bad uh, it's high but is it bad 
Um, the the next layer, also an oversimplification, is oh, we have to lower the variability. We have to avoid peaks, and we have to avoid that sometimes it it drops. Um, I think that is way too uh, too much oversimplification. Um, and then I think what we need to get to is really the core of that uh, that onion is that, well, we need a more integrated approach with probably with other information, other devices. And we need to interpret the data in the context of the specific uh, situation. So it is therefore important to know what glucose can tell us, but also what glucose cannot uh, tell us. So in summary, I think new technologies are can be useful, um, but the fact that we have a new technology or we have a new gadget doesn't necessarily mean that it is useful. The first question to ask is, is it accurate or is it at least accurate enough? Is it valid and is it reproducible? Um, I'll talk about that in a, in a minute. Is there evidence that this technology provides a meaningful advantage? You can measure something, but does it really make a difference? That's the question we should be asking. Also, is the outcome actionable? Sometimes we measure something and it's just a number and we then continue on with our lives. We've seen the number, but we don't actually do anything. Now, for that technology to be useful, there needs to be an actionable outcome. Um, is the technology the limiting factor or are there other limiting factors? So in this case, uh, CGM, for example, um, it could be that the technology is really good at measuring glucose, but glucose metabolism is so complex that we can't interpret the, uh, the, the data. Um, so we need to understand what are some of these other limiting factors, maybe in understand our understanding of the physiology? Um, negative effects, this is also something to consider. So with um, negative effect could be, well, it may be painful to put the sensor on. It's not really, but <laughs> um, that could be a negative effect. But uh, a real negative effect would be if now the athlete is distracted by this device um, or gets anxious because it gives numbers the athlete doesn't understand. So these are real things that we need to consider before we use a new technology, not just CGM, any technology. So let's go back to what exactly is CGM or where does it come from? So if we go to the, um, the left-hand side of the slide here, then of course it was developed for patients uh, people living with diabetes and they need to to understand what their glucose is they need a finger prick it's a quick measurement um, but it's not so easy uh, to do and then once you've done it you have one measurement in time um, that also isn't always that accurate uh, especially if it's more difficult to get blood out of your finger the uh, and you have to press the finger what you're measuring may not be super accurate, but maybe accurate enough for the uh, for the purpose. But that was uh, initially how how this was done. Then this device was developed that measured glucose continuously. 
Um, so there was a micro needle, a sensor with a micro needle. And then you would have to take your phone and you would scan the uh, the sensor. Um, and then it would give you a value on your phone. Uh, and in a way that was similar to the, uh, the finger prick. You just get one value at that point in time. Of course, you could then go to, you could download all that information to your computer and look at what your glucose was in the last few hours. The, uh, the new sensor um, allowed live streaming of that information to a phone. So now the sensor contained Bluetooth and there was a connection between your phone and the, uh, the sensor and you can constantly see how the values change every minute. So that was used in patients, uh, but more recently, uh, the devices have become available for healthy individuals, for athletes. So now in most countries, people, or not most countries, but in selected countries, I should say, people can buy these devices and put them on their arms uh, or other places in their body, and they can have access to continuous measurements of blood glucose the uh, the next advancement is that we now can integrate this with a number of these uh, sports watches uh, bike computers um, there is a um, a wristband that uh, that comes with it that just tells you your uh, glucose so uh, it integrates with apple watch now so we have lots of integrations uh, between the sensor, making the use uh, easier and easier. Um, we then, uh, Super Sapiens in, in this case, um, and I should have mentioned at the very beginning that I also work as a um, an advisor to Super Sapiens who has the license, uh, the company that has the license to use these uh, sensors uh, that are made by Abbott. Uh, and they have a license to then sell this to uh, healthy individuals or athletes. Um, so that's the uh, that's the background. So what are we actually measuring? Well, the the sensor goes uh, on the skin. There is a micro needle. I don't know if you can see this on the uh, very well on the screen, but there is a micro needle here that punctures the uh, the skin and samples fluid from the interstitial space. Um, so it doesn't measure blood glucose, it measures glucose from the interstitial uh, space. Um, and that's that's really how um, we get, uh, we, we measure uh, the glucose concentration in this space, which I'll show you in a, in a little bit, uh, reflects what happens in the blood, but it does uh, have a little bit of a delay. Um, what we get then is uh, is this. Um, you have your phone and you get this uh, this glucose trace here. Um, and you just start to collect these uh, these data and you get a value every minute, at least every minute if you have the watch, sorry, the phone near you. Um, if you cannot have the phone near you and you cannot have the uh, the wristband uh, near you, then it stores uh, one value every 15 minutes. So it's a lot less uh, useful. Um, so 
that's essentially what you will see on your phone. Um, and here's a, a glucose trace that I did a, a while ago. You can see that um, you can see the value at that point is uh, at that point in time is given here. You can see the trace of your glucose at the uh, at the bottom here. You can see this gray band that is this, this is my data. So this is would be my sort of normal range. Um, you can see during the night here. <clears throat> glucose is very low then at this point i'll get up and you can see some small changes in glucose concentration there's a breakfast and then a uh, much larger peak and then after that very normal response you get a drop in uh, glucose to fairly low levels and it comes back up and it stays low normal for a long time at this point i think i did some uh, exercise and this is especially where people respond quite differently. So um, for me, it's quite hard, even if the exercise is quite intense, it's quite hard to increase my uh, blood glucose concentration. For other people, it, that may be much easier. You can see a little bit later in the day, here's another meal. And then here we can see a drop um, that was actually associated with feeling hungry and then a larger meal and a larger peak anyway that's just a very simple example of how sort of the glucose can be measured during the day and how it can tell the story uh, to some degree of what your day was like um i've taken this um from a blog from nicola guess uh, on the topic of cgm and glucose not spokes, sorry about that title, and uh, but spikes and crashes. And in um, <clears throat> in this blog, she describes that well, there's various ways in which we can look at the uh, the glucose trace. We can, um, for example, look at the average over 24 hours, and that will probably give us a similar indication of glucose as the uh, HbA1c. <clears throat> We could look at the variability of the uh, of the trace. We could look at the lowest values that we see. We could also look at the peaks, and we could look at how steep the um, the gradient is for of these peaks. We could also set certain ranges and see how long uh, we spent in each of these time ranges. Um, and then the uh, finally, um, we could also get from this what your fasting glucose is. Um, and oh, not uh, finally, there's also nocturnal uh, glucose. So because we are wearing this device when we're sleeping, we could now we can now also get information about what happens with glucose as we are sleeping. So we get a lot of information from just a small device. And I probably forgot to say that once you put this device on, it can measure your glucose concentration in the interstitium for uh, two weeks nonstop. But um, there are also uh, limitations, as I said in the uh, in the beginning, and we need to understand uh, really well what those limitations are. Um, 
Some of those could be in the accuracy. Accuracy is a bit of a vague term, to, to be honest. So in, in science, we use the, the terms valid and reliable. Valid means, is it measuring what it's supposed to measure? And is it reliable? Which means if you use it several times in a row, do you measure the same thing? Um, and then it's very often seen in sport, at least, as a fuel sensor or a fuel gauge. Um, and it is some, is it something that can tell you when you have to go into the pit lane and be refueled? Um, so that's, uh, those are some of the limitations I think that we'll talk about now. So we said that glucose is regulated within a narrow range, a fasting glucose, and I'm going to focus on this unit here. Fasting glucose is usually below 100. Um, before we eat a meal, it's typically between 72 and 90. These are all averages. Um, Post-meal peaks can be as high as 140, usually in the range 110 to 140. The average over 24 hours is usually between, a 90, between 90 and 100. The lowest value we would see in, uh, usually is about 50. And the highest values that we would see are around 180. Sometimes we see lower values than 50. Sometimes we see values that are even higher than 180. But um, most happens within this uh, range of 90 to 100. Um, <clears throat> there are several validation studies in the, uh, in the literature where um, the sensor uh, glucose is compared with glucose measured in uh, plasma or in blood and you get scatter plots like this and I think I don't want to sort of spend too much time on this because my conclusion is that actually for the purpose that we're using this it is accurate enough there may be purposes research purposes mostly where you want it to be more accurate um, but I think for what we are using this for in sport, um, the sensor, if it's working well, is accurate enough. So generally, CGM tracks blood glucose very well. Most studies show a good correlation between CGM and blood or plasma glucose. Um, but the context is also important. So how accurate do the measurements need to be? Um, and does it also track changes? So how accurate does it need to be? It's it's like a timing device in a sporting event. Um, like sometimes you can measure a sporting event and it's you can measure it in seconds and that is accurate enough. Sometimes you need something that measures till one thousandth of a second and even that cannot be accurate enough to detect differences. Um, so... Uh, it really depends on the uh, the context. Um, I already mentioned that there is a delay because you're measuring interstitial glucose and not blood glucose. Um, so if you measure uh, both, and uh, Helen Bauhaus did this and presented it at the European College of Sports uh, Science meeting uh, last year, um, a nice study where uh, at rest during exercise at moderate intensity and high intensity, she measured both sensor glucose and blood glucose. And um, the general conclusion is it just lags behind a little bit. 
um, but the shape of the curve is exactly the same. So depending on what you want to get from this, um, I think very often when we work with athletes, we're more interested in the shape of the curve than exactly like what the concentration is at, at a certain time point. So I think um, it, this is really not a, a problem. And it's only um, this lagging behind only happens if you get uh, pretty uh, like uh, substantial changes in the glucose concentration. So there's a few minutes lag between sensor glucose and blood glucose. Um, of course, that is important when we are interested in studying the changes in glucose. Then it's, it's important to have something that doesn't have this lag. So this is just a schematic um, I've just posted. For those of you who uh, visit mysportscience.com for uh, some blogs where I try to talk about the science behind some of the things we see in sports nutrition and sports science. And um, I've just posted this blog um, with Mike uh, Riddell and he's um, uh, basically we, we came up with this in, infographic to show how uh, sensor glucose relates to blood glucose. And it's, it's really just, the, the values are almost identical if they are just like a few minutes later. So sensor glucose is precise, but with a time lag. Now, <clears throat> I think this discussion is more important. So what does blood glucose actually tell us? Does it tell us something about fuel use, for example? And I think the answer is, well, probably not very much. If we, um, this in this example, we have a bucket and the bucket contains water, which represents the glucose concentration. So there's a certain level of water in that bucket. And on the left, we have a hole in this bucket and water is flowing out. That is what we call the RD or the rate of disappearance of glucose. That is the uptake of glucose into the muscle, into uh, the brain and, and other tissues. Now, the concentration here doesn't change because at the same time, we have a rate of appearance that is the liver producing glucose or maybe the intestine dumping glucose into the circulation. And if the RA and the RD are exactly the same, there's no change in the concentration. So we measure a concentration of 100, for example. Now, if we go to the situation on the right or in the center of this uh, graph, we now have a much greater rate of appearance and a much greater rate of disappearance. So we say the flux is many times greater than, uh, than on the left, but the concentration is exactly the same. So if we measure the concentration and we would use that as a fuel gauge, we would say, well, these two conditions are exactly the same, but they're not. Uh, in one situation, we have a very high uh, uptake and use of glucose, and in the other condition, we don't. So, and because glucose is regulated uh, in such a narrow range, it's really difficult to draw conclusions from just the glucose concentration on what's actually going into the muscle, what's actually being used during exercise. 
<clears throat> so that's a little bit about some of the some of the limitations. We can talk more about the the, the practical aspects in the, in a little bit. I just want to talk a little bit about glycemic index because that's where the CGM could be useful. It's also where um, potentially the biggest problems are. So glycemic index is, of course, the area under the curve after eating a standard uh, amount of uh, food or a standardized amount of carbohydrate in a food. Um, and we can measure a large peak or we can measure a small peak. We relate something to, uh, for example, 50 grams or 75 grams of uh, glucose. Uh, we calculate a ratio between those two, and that gives us an idea of the glycemic index. This is a beautiful, I think, theoretical concept, um, but the realities are, um, the, the practicalities of it are a little bit more uh, complicated. But if this would work, of course, CGM is a great tool to uh, to look at this because now we don't have to do this in a laboratory we can just do it uh, at home with various foods and <clears throat> one thing that's really interesting is on the uh, the website that i have and, and one of the blogs is about uh, glycemic index and uh, i post this uh, sort of graphic with different uh, glycemic indices of different foods and I always get people commenting on social media on these things and say, no, you got the glycemic index of this bread uh, wrong or you got oatmeal is in the wrong uh, category. Um, but those are people that have never done these measurements and have never used CGM to see what the responses actually are. If you did them, you would see that they are highly, highly variable from person to person and even within a person. So there are three issues with using this interpretation or looking at uh, glucose peaks. The first one is that if you have two individuals, they may have a completely different response to the same food. These tables that we have with uh, a glycemic index, the, the low medium and high glycemic index they're based on averages but very few people are of course average and if we use cgm at a population level it will probably work if we use it with an individual athlete that is a whole different uh, story um i'll also show you some data uh, of different of the same measurement or the same food um within an individual that even that will cause large variability um so it's not that easy to interpret but the most important thing is that individuals are different i think that is also what the strength is of cgm because now we have a tool to actually look at those individual differences so instead of giving very generic advice that is based on averages we can now measure within an individual and base our advice on that measurement. Um, the second point is, of course, that the glycemic index doesn't take into account the serving size. And the third point is that um, these tables are all isolated uh, foods, but we usually eat meals. And when you combine things, it's not like you then just average the glycemic index uh, indexes of that uh, of all the things that you ate. 
um, it is uh, a much more complex food matrix with a unknown outcome in terms of glucose response. So there are definitely sort of limitations to the use of glycemic index. Um, this is from a uh, study uh, in 2010. Uh, Whelan et al. and they measured uh, glucose responses to 50 grams of glucose and look at the differences in the glucose response. But we we don't communicate that. We communicate, oh, here's a glycemic index of this food, and it has this particular value. Um, and this is the variation between individuals. So in this study, individuals were fed three times the same uh, meal. The, um, the intra-individual variation was 20%, and the inter-individual variation is 25%. So we can expect quite a bit of variation when we do these measurements. Now, how do we apply a CGM correctly, and how do we um, use it in a meaningful way in sports? So that's probably the, uh, the most important question. And... I think there are four areas where it can be really useful and can be used with very little or no risk. The first one is to prevent bonking or hitting the wall, whatever term you use, essentially preventing hyperglycemia during prolonged exercise. So I'm cycling along and the CGM can probably tell me when I'm becoming hyperglycemic. The second one is to optimize pre-competition meals and prevent rebound hypoglycemia. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. And to support cognitive performance, uh, there's a lot of overlap between point two and three. And the fourth one is, I'm not going to talk about that because we have so little data. Uh, we are in the process of collecting a lot of data, and I think this is really promising. Um we, we can probably use it to optimize feeding for sleep. Um, we know that athletes wake up when glucose drops below certain levels. So can we actually feed them before they go to bed so that they don't wake up in the middle of the night? This usually happens in periods where they train really hard. Um, and of course, we, we know that that hard training usually uh, goes with poor sleep and waking up well it's very likely that glucose has a role to play in that poor sleep so can we prevent this by um, manipulating uh, food intake before going to bed so let's talk about the first point first and that is if we are engaged in prolonged exercise whether it's cycling or running or some something else um could CGM actually warn us uh, that we are starting to develop hypoglycemia? Um, and then could it basically give us a signal to uh, start fueling? So the example would be, we measure blood glucose and at nine o'clock uh, when we um, started the exercise, we feel fine. And a little bit later, we still feel fine. And a little bit later, we still feel fine. And then suddenly at 11, two hours into the run or into the ride, we suddenly feel lightheaded and dizzy. We then measure blood glucose. And yeah, the conclusion is as expected. It was very low. 
Now, if we'd had CGM in this case, maybe what we would have seen is that actually that drop in blood glucose started already 45 minutes before. And that's typically what studies show, 30 to 45 minutes before you can see that glucose already starts to decline. So at that point where the um, an algorithm would detect that it's starting to decline, you could actually get a, a signal by your watch for, for example, or your phone that uh, tells you, yes, it is a good time to start fueling now. I think this is something that um, will come. Um, we don't have this yet. We have it in um, in diabetes, of course, where it start, where it's actually really good at predicting uh, very low values. But in healthy individuals, we're talking about a much smaller range. And therefore, developing these algorithms will be a little bit more complex. I do think this is something that we'll see in the uh, future. Uh, but now manually, of course, you could already look at this uh, at this data. And the, the, the apps will actually tell you whether the trend is down or the trend is uh, is up or the trend is that it's stable. So um, this is something that will develop in the future. Here you see one of the uh, riders from Jumbo Visma, uh, Wout van Aert. He is, uh, he's got his phone in his hand and the phone is actually telling him what to eat uh, for breakfast and how much. So he's weighing his uh, breakfast. We do this uh, every day and we've done this for several years with the uh, with the team. And what they eat before a race is partly dependent on some of the CGM measurements that we've done. Uh, so that's what I'll talk about next. And I'll talk about it um, with a sort of theoretical example. So we know from the uh, from the literature that if you take, for example, glucose 45 minutes before exercise, then we can measure a rise in glucose. We can also measure a rise in insulin. Of course, when we then start exercise, we get a rapid drop in blood glucose, often to hypoglycemic uh, levels after about 10 to 20 minutes. And then after that, glucose seems to stabilize again. So now, of course, we can measure all of this. And we can manipulate the timing of the intake or the timing of the uh, of the meal. Um, but we <clears throat> we showed that this uh, this hypoglycemia doesn't necessarily uh, it's often it's often assumed that it's bad for performance, but it in from the literature, we can't really conclude that. So but the literature, um basically does an exercise test that is uh, or most studies at least do um, an exercise test or performance task uh, during this time and then they measured over maybe 15 or 45 minutes or an hour and the conclusion is usually uh, taking carbohydrate before the exercise improves performance or doesn't affect performance um, only two studies out of like, I don't know, maybe 120, 130 that we have in the literature, um, only two studies have ever shown a decrease in performance. And those were studies done in the 70s and never been reproduced. So I don't think that we really need to worry that much about hypoglycemia. But there are situations where 
perhaps we might. Uh, for example, if in a in a Tour de France, the riders uh, would do this, they go to the start of the Tour, and at this 10-minute point or 15-minute point where the glucose is at its lowest, um, what if at that exact point uh, the race is really hard and you need to follow? And I think that has definitely put you at a disadvantage. And if you're trying to follow the uh, the group or the race, then um, what will probably happen is that glucose will fall even more. So if, however, the start of the, uh, or the Tour de France stage is uh, relatively easy, then automatically your body will regulate blood glucose to normal. And then if you measure performance later in that stage, you're not going to see a difference. So it may depend a little bit on the on the timing. So here's a, a theoretical example. Someone getting up at 7 o'clock in the morning, having breakfast at 8, and then 45 minutes later going for a run. Of course, after the breakfast, we see a rise in blood glucose. And then as the exercise starts, or as the run starts, there is a drop. We develop hypoglycemia. And over time, if you just keep running, it'll come back to normal. So I, if we want to avoid this hypoglycemia, one of the things we could do, of course, is, well, we just have a breakfast that doesn't have as much carbohydrate, that doesn't increase insulin so much um, and we get a smaller peak in uh, glucose and we do not get this drop when we exercise that's just one of the ways to deal with it another way to deal with it of course is this is the same example if we now move the meal the same meal but we move the meal closer to the start of the run so that's another tool that we would have. We can just change the timing of the intake. That will also result in a smaller peak and prevent hypoglycemia. Now, which uh, solution you choose probably depends on the athlete you're working with because the athlete may tell you, well, I can't eat uh, 20 minutes before my run or 10 minutes before my run because it'll give me stomach problems. <clears throat> um, and then in that case, maybe you have to move the meal in the other direction longer before the run, or you have to play with the composition of the uh, of the meal. Um, similar situation <clears throat> when we try to improve cognitive function. So here we have an athlete uh, doing some cognitive tasks uh, behind a computer. Um, and there are like there's a wide range of cognitive tasks that uh, that we could do. Um, just trying to make this work. So cognitive performance is depending on fuel supply to the brain, and low blood glucose is detrimental. And studies have shown this um, on reaction time choice reaction time so reaction time simple reaction time is just like a light goes on and you have to react to it choice reaction time is there's two lights one of the lights will go on and you have to react to that uh, decision making that could be um, a pretty complex uh, task so um, i could ask you to um, just only respond to the red light um, or a green light uh, complex decision making that is uh, where 
you have to respond to a word, uh, for, for example, and the word is written in a certain color. And sometimes I ask you to, um, and, and it's written in a different color. So green may be um, written in the color red. And I tell you, respond to the color red, or I tell you, respond to the word green. So that's complex decision-making. Timing um, is, is pretty obvious. Vision and peripheral vision are also affected by glucose and coordination. So that makes blood glucose pretty important to a very large number of sports, almost all sports, I would say. Um, we know that glucose concentrations that are too low or too high can affect short-term memory, reaction time, choice reaction task, complex task, and so on. Um, if it is too low, especially um, complex tasks are uh, affected. Uh, you can't make the right decisions. Usually we see many, many more errors when glucose is low. With high glucose, what we sometimes see is slower reaction time and also reduced cognitive performance in general. I'm going to use this uh, It's one of the nicest studies I think we have in the literature. Unfortunately, it is just a case study from one uh, driver in the IndyCar, um, but it's a really unique example. So this is uh, Charlie Campbell, who's got uh, type 1 diabetes. So he basically lived his life with a glucose sensor. And all of this data from every day is stored. He's also done 47 races with CGM. So if you have so much data from one athlete, you can then... Uh, establish what is normal blood glucose for him, what is high blood glucose and what is low blood glucose. You can then also look at, you can do tests of reaction time, which they did in this study, and you can give him all sorts of cognitive performance tasks. You can also look at his performances in those races. Now, what they observed was that um, on average, of course, uh, this is his normal uh, glucose, but that's also where he had the fastest reaction times. As soon as glucose was too low or glucose was too high. Sorry. Uh, if glucose was too high, then they saw slower reaction times. For decisions and cognitive tasks and uh, errors, um, it was clear that he made more errors when glucose was low, um, but it, when it was high, um, the number of errors was the same as with normal. Um, and then the time behind the leader was how they expressed his performance in the in the car. He was 4.8 seconds faster when his he could control his glucose within the normal range, but when the glucose concentration was low or high, uh, outside that uh, range, um, his performance was worse. Um, and I think uh, we can't automatically uh, take this information from one driver and apply it to all uh, individuals without di diabetes, but I think this is where the future will, will go. We'll get more and more healthy individuals, athletes, using uh, using the sensor, we'll get more data, more information of whether these sort of things also apply to healthy individuals.
So what should we aim for um, in uh, sports where cognitive performance is is important? Um, I think stable blood glucose during competition. Um, I'm not saying stable glucose throughout the day because I don't think we have evidence that, that there's any benefit there. Uh, but stable glucose during competition, glucose within a narrow range during the competition. Um, and of course, avoid for sure, avoid hyperglycemia near the race and hyperglycemia when possible. So last couple of slides uh, with some conclusions and probably takeaways. So one conclusion is that CGM has been around for years, have been uh, tried and tested, I think, in diabetes, but has now become available for athletes and hasn't been tried and tested there uh, very much. It is important to understand what CGM can and cannot tell us. Um, and the third point, it is promising, I think. It's a really promising technology, but very early days. Research is only just starting to emerge, and uh, we will for sure see the, this increase in the next few years. I think there are three like general areas where it can help. The first one is it can help educate athletes. Um, if you can sit down with an athlete and show them their own data, and how they respond to uh, particular foods, I think it's really powerful, even if it's just to start a conversation with them about how important it is. Uh, and I've seen this, uh, some really good examples of this in, in some of the athletes that I've worked with that maybe were not that interested in, in food, but actually showing how their bodies respond to certain foods um, made them a lot more interested and a lot more aware. Um, improving eating behavior that's actually linked to that uh, to that first point uh, because you can now give feedback um, it gives athletes sometimes uh, an aha moment or not just athletes just people in general um, and then uh, the third point is personalizing and that's the the example of optimizing pre-race or pre-competition breakfast uh, or meal is uh, is one of those examples there are also risks, I think, associated with uh, the use of CGM. Um, I think if you just give one of these sensors to an athlete, the chance is that they will draw too many conclusions way too soon and probably way too extreme. Usually what I'll do is I, I have a, a wonderful example of where I did a webinar with Chris Froome. Um, now, he's, he's won the, the, the Tour de France several times. He, You would think he should know what uh, what to eat. So he used the uh, the sensor, and when asked, what did the sensor tell you? Um, and his answer was, well, I needed to exclude uh, orange juice from my diet. Well, probably because he saw that orange juice for him caused some peaks and then some drops. Um, but of course, that's just normal physiology. It doesn't mean that you have to remove it from your diet. Um, but that's what athletes would uh, would take away from it very often. Um, it also can create quite a bit of anxiety because now you, every minute you get new data and it's going up and down and 
uh, athletes are constantly wondering, is this good or bad? It's that outer layer of the onion that I showed. Am I doing the right thing? What if this and what if that? So it, it can create with some athletes a lot of anxiety. There are ways uh, around that, and as, that is to um, to tell athletes not to interpret this data, um, but to just use it to answer very specific questions. For example, um, if you want to optimize competition, uh, pre-competition meal, just focus on that particular question. We're trying to reduce the the glucose drop in this uh, specific time frame. Um, <clears throat> what are some of the benefits? Well, I think one of them is that we now can actually measure things where uh, previously we just give average nutrition advice based on average values and give that same advice to everyone. Um, that was the example with the glycemic index that I, uh, that I mentioned. Um, it really allows to give very individualized advice instead of the generic advice. It can help to prevent hyperglycemia, which can be really helpful in some situations uh, in some sports. And it can provide new insights um, in what happens with glucose during sleep. Um, I think it could perhaps also provide new insights into energy availability. Um, I'm not convinced, but I think that's an area that that is being researched quite a bit. And uh, I think it'd be really interesting to see what uh, what those studies will tell us. Um, and there are probably more, many more new areas that will be explored. And as, as I said at the very beginning, we've gone through this with heart rate monitors. We've gone through this with power meters. Initially, many wrong decisions were made, many wrong conclusions were drawn, but over time, the tools that we had to help us to interpret this data um, became better and better. And I think that's what we're going to see with CGM as well. So um, that was really what I wanted to uh, share with you. Thank you very much for uh, listening. I know you're um, at the beginning of a few very exciting days over there, and uh, I'm uh, really um, sad that uh, that I have to miss it. I would love to be there, but I wish you a few uh, few good days. And uh, um, Fiona and Greg, I don't know if uh, if we can do questions in any way, but uh, if so, I'm happy, of course, to uh, to answer some questions. Thank you. Thank you very much.
anti-doping uh, implications um no it has not been um there are no implications at all i think um very very early on i contacted um wada about this i contacted also the uci about this and they were pretty clear that this is not considered a needle um so it doesn't uh, fall under the uh, sort of no needle uh, policy so that's not the uh, the issue at the same time the uci so cycling uh, they have um uh, prohibited the use of CGM in competition. So it's okay to use it in training, but in competition, you're not uh, allowed to use it. And they've actually disqualified um, a couple of riders in the, in the last year um, who had a CGM uh, device. Um, the reasons for um, doing this or saying no to the sensors is... Uh, is a little bit unclear to me, and they're not uh, they're not really clear in describing the uh, the reasons. Um, uh, what one of the reasons uh, in cycling that is uh, legit is that you're not allowed to provide any sort of physiological data back to the team cars, for example, and that that I can understand. But for the rider uh, themselves. Um, they, I, I think they should still be able to see the, um, uh, the glucose data, but at the moment in, uh, in cycling, this is uh, not allowed, but that's as far as I know, it's the only sport, uh, where it's, where it's not allowed. Yeah, I think it's uh, um, so. Are there any uh, any other sort of um, things that can be measured with these types of uh, monitors? I think it's just a matter of time. Um, I've already trialed a uh, a lactate monitor that works in pretty much the same way. Uh, there is a ketone monitor on its way as well, and I think it's just it's just a matter of time. So the the lactate monitor should have been on the market already. Um, but there are clearly uh, lots lots of issues. I I probably tested one more than a year ago. Uh, 
and they they're quite far, but obviously not uh, not quite uh, quite there yet. Um, I when it, when it comes to lactate, it's really interesting because I think then the time lag that you have between interstitium and uh, or blood and the interstitium that's going to be a real problem in interpreting that uh, that data because you want instant uh, data and with lactate the values from uh, 10 minutes ago are really not going to be very helpful i think in guiding the uh, the training it's probably still easier than um doing finger pricks um but more for analysis after the training rather than um, immediate feedback uh, during but but those are things that yeah we have we have to discover but um, where I think for glucose the delay is not really an issue I think for lactate it's quite a major issue Well, thank you, thank you very much. I was uh, just imagining everyone nodding there to uh, to my answers and going, yeah, looking very happy. So, um, thank you. It was uh, it was great to be uh, to be part of this. Next time, I'll uh, I'll be there in person. Thank you very much, everyone, and have a great uh, few days. Bye bye.